This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have as our guest today, Ray Scott, who is the author of The Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. Ray, are you there? Sir, good to be with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure having you on my show. You've, uh, you've um, got a bunch of decades to talk about <laughs> in, in terms of, of, your, of your basketball uh, experiences it's uh you know you've had quite a life thank you uh yes we we begin in the book uh from from the actual beginning because i like to talk about my stepdad who adopted me and i became his son i was originally uh, john raymond howard and i became a john raymond scott but the reason i like to speak about my stepdad so much is because as a little guy he was the person who got me interested in sports, but it was primarily boxing. Um, and I used to listen to boxing with my stepdad on Friday nights, the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports, which uh, in our in our age group we remember. Uh, you know, very very few people uh, of the younger people remember Gillette Cavalcade of Sports. But that uh, made me close to my dad, and he died when I was eight years old, and I became a latchkey kid. And I went from a kid that was uh, a latchkey kid whose life was saved because I picked up a little brown ball and started bouncing this ball and shooting it at a basket. And I did that for a long time, uh, almost 30, 30, 40 years. I, I shot that ball at the basket or I coached people how to do it. So it, it meant a lot to me uh, when I was asked to uh, uh, do this book and put this book together uh, with Charlie Rosen, uh, when we talked about it, I just said, you know, I have very profound thoughts about basketball and about boxing because those are the two sports that I grew up on, one playing and the other just have a, having an incredible interest. Well, I'm with you in all that. Um, I as a, There's a number of things in here that uh, – we want to have people understand and and uh-huh. and admire, I guess is a good thing. Um, well, thank you. The um, Earl Monroe uh, in, did your introduction in the book. Yes. Um, and I was just the other day down taking my car to the dealership because something was wrong with it. Uh-huh. And, and we got to talking about um Detroit and and ah. other things and what we started what we ended up with at the same time we said Earl Monroe. Ah. We didn't say it like that. We went Earl the Pearl. Earl the Pearl, that's correct. Now he has a has a has an important statement here at the end of his introduction. The last paragraph says Ray is neither an NBA apologist nor an NBA critic. He just tells it like it, like he saw it, which is exactly the way it was and is. 
The only thing you forgot was amen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. that was when we came through that period. You know, the 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 period that Earl and I grew up in, and I came. I was a little bit ahead of Earl. I was like uh, that four year senior, that student that was a freshman in college uh, right. when Earl was coming into prominence. And so watching him come into prominence is always has always been an interesting story to me because a lot of people don't know uh, uh, that Earl was an excellent soccer player who converted. The, the, the coach saw him walking down the hallway, and he saw this 6'2", 6'3", kid, and he said, that kid's got to play basketball. And he <laughs> took him off the soccer field and taught him to start teaching him the rudiments of the game of basketball. And I went to see Earl play in high school for a city title uh, when I was in the, uh, when I was in a rookie uh, in the NBA. So Earl was very, very special to all of us because all of a sudden this kid came out on the court and he was converting his skills and you just couldn't believe him because it was part NBA, part Harlem Globetrotter. And mm-hmm. so there was an entertainment investment to his game until he became a New York Nick, and then he put the entertaining stuff away and just became a, a straight-up fundamental player and champion with uh, Clyde Frazier and Willis Reed and uh, Bill Bradley and Dave DeBusher. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They were just – they operated. They were a very efficient op, uh, group. But I was very, very proud of Earl. Uh, that he achieved the level in basketball that he did. Well, I, too, uh, followed him. If he was playing, if the Knicks were playing, I was usually watching, only uh-huh. because I wanted to watch him. That's um, true. He was, he, to me, he was like a magician. Uh, yes. Yeah. How he did it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he um, was much more, much more the magician – in the terms that you're speaking of, what you saw mm-hmm. with the Knicks, but he was much more of a magician with the team that I played with him with, the Baltimore Bullets, when we had uh-huh. Wes Unsell and Gus Johnson and Kevin Lockery and Jack okay. Marin. Right. Uh, you know, that team played for the championship, too, against uh, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and the, or the Lou Alcindor at the time, uh, Milwaukee Bucks. So right. Earl... Earl is, uh, you know, he's quite representative of the game in all all that he can do. He he did a lot on the basketball floor, but he entertained the people in Baltimore and got them interested and sold out our stadium. And then he went up with the Knicks, uh, mm-hmm. and he boy he became a a champion. You know, at the mm-hmm. end of the year, he's playing for the world title. So he he's someone in Philadelphia we're quite proud of. Tell me, how many years did you actually play pro ball, pro basketball? I actually played, I, I played four years with a team, three years, I beg your pardon, with a team called the Allentown Jets because I dropped out of college. And so I played, that's where I was drafted from, uh, with the Detroit Pistons, where I played, uh, oh, three and a half, almost four years, and played another mm-hmm. three and a half, almost four years with the Baltimore Bullets after I was. I'm sorry, I said three and a half, six years. Six years Detroit Pistons, three years Baltimore Bullets, and two years with the ABA Virginia Squires, 
with Dr. J and Charlie Scott, uh, Dr. J and Charlie Scott. So I right. played 11, 11 full years uh, of professional basketball, and then I coached another four years, and then I coached another four years at university. So a kid from South Philly, third floor walk-up, got to be a coach at the university level, a coach at the professional level, and a, and a player at the professional level, and I'm quite proud of that. Well, you should be. I mean, this was 1974. Uh, you were the first black man to become a coach. And uh, that's quite an achievement. Thank you. Thank you. It really is. Yeah, standing at midcourt when I received my Coach of the Year trophy and standing at midcourt, I was only left with, with, with uh, really one, one thought, John. And I was left with the thought of, how did I get here? And I wonder how many people get an, you know, a, 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 an achievement award and they stand there and think to themselves, boy, how did I ever get here? And that was, that was me. That was a, that kid from South Philly that wondered about that, all that you, you live in South Philly and West Philly and you coach in Detroit and you play in Baltimore and you play in Virginia. And then you come back and you're an assistant coach for seven games. I was mm-hmm. named the head coach after seven games. I had no idea of what I was supposed to do as a head coach. I, I, all I had seen was my head coaches, <laughs> but I wasn't trained. I'd never been an assistant. And there I am. They say, you're the head coach. And that's virtually the same way I got to Detroit. One day they said to me in Allentown, you're the fourth pick of the, uh, of the uh, Detroit Pistons. And I come to Detroit, and this is a town because I wasn't a college All-American. This is a town where nobody even knew who the heck I was. They didn't even know, you know, I mean, they didn't know my name. Who is this guy? So right. I have to come to town, and I, but I played here. I lasted six years, and mm-hmm. I, had, I had good years. But I, I, I did well enough that they brought me back as a coach. They thought that I had value as a coach. What they saw they never answered because I asked, <laughs> what did you see in me, you know? And uh, uh, Mr. Zala just said, I I just believe that you were that kid that, that, that grew up in our organization and we wanted to have you as as a leader. And so I was well, quite, quite honored. Well, you know, you have to take under consideration, Ray, you're a natural. And, uh, oh, and I'm not. And I'm not talking about Robert Redford in the baseball movie. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but that's you're a natural. Right. You're a natural. Well, and that's you. why I came to you. You came to me. Yeah. Okay. I'll remember that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, a question for you now. Mm-hmm. Another player I uh, liked was Elgin Baylor. Mm-hmm. And how did he get the nickname Rabbit? You know, you're one of the few people, John, that I have talked to historically about basketball, and the first person they bring up is Elgin. You are one of the first. The majority of the people in basketball today, as you know, they bring up Michael Jordan, or they'll bring up LeBron, or they'll bring up, you know, Steph Curry. Nobody brings up Elgin Baylor. They'll even bring up Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell. 
Mm-hmm. But no, and and Elgin Baylor is probably one of the finest players that has ever graced the basketball court, and he got the name the Rabbit in D.C. I saw him. I made a trip to D.C. and it's it's in the book. But I made a trip to D.C. when I was 12 years old, and one of the guys that I was playing with in the uh, development where I was living said, "I want to take you to see this guy." He takes me to a playground in uh, southwestern D.C., and I see this guy playing, and I'm just standing there as a 12-year-old watching him, and he never lost a game. I mean, they played like, I'll say, just to give it a number, I'll say they played five to ten games. He, every game they played, he was on the winning team. And I said, who, who is this guy? And he said, you're talking about the rabbit? I said, rabbit? Why, why are you calling rabbit? He said, because he jumps so high all the time. Uh-huh. It was fitting because he had, they even talked about serious hops then. He had hops. He could jump. And I, I got a story for you. So I see this guy at 12 years old. I'm standing there watching him, and he's unbelievable. He's dunking the ball. He's driving the ball. He's making outside shots. He's doing just everything. So that was it. I mean, I go home, and I, I would never forget him. And uh, six six years later, as a sophomore in college, I played my, because I went to junior college my first year. My second year, I'm playing in University of Portland in Oregon, and our adversary was the Seattle Chiefs. And guess who the star of the Seattle Chiefs is? Elgin <laughs> Bell. <laughs> there you go. So not only did I, I honor him, Standing on the sidelines, I got to honor him, watching him score. He's, I think that weekend, in two games, I think he scored 60 and four. He scored like 104 points in that weekend mm-hmm. against the University of Portland because those were the days when you went to a city, you played two, two games, and, you, you know, and so I got to see him twice. And, but, but the biggest thing for me socially is he took me to a movie. He said to my roommate now, Jimmy Armstrong, he said, would you guys want to go to the movies? We said, yeah, let's go to a movie. So we go to a movie, and he takes us to see an, uh, uh, Ernest uh, Hemingway, A Farewell to Arms. Mm-hmm. And it was like one of the greatest motion pictures I ever saw. And from that point on, I bought almost every book that Ernest Hemingway ever wrote. I became a huge fan. So I have to pin that on Elgin. If don't get mad at me, it was Elgin Baylor that took <laughs> Now I have a uh, another question. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when, I guess the um, the white and black was there a quota system in the NBA? Absolutely. Yes. Well, there was a quota system because at one time there were no blacks at all in the NBA when they started the league in 1947. Right. Uh, but by 1950, they said, no, we, there, there are players out there that can play. And, we're, and uh, Red Auerbach said, well, I'll, we're drafting Chuck Cooper, uh, who was an All-American at Duquesne. And uh, the, Washington, the Washington Capitals drafted Earl Lloyd, who was a star at West Virginia State University, which was a black school which was unheard of, people saying mm-hmm. that, that African-Americans had even played 
you know, basketball with all, with all All-Americans because the NBA was an All-American league. And then the third player they picked uh, was the New York Knicks bought the contract of Nat Sweetwater Clifton. And so the Knicks get Sweetwater, and those three guys in 1950 became the integral parts of the NBA saying that they were going to be inclusive, inclusive. And they brought these three players forward. Now, they weren't the stars. As you know, the stars became Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, and Oscar Robertson. Mm -hmm. Those were the four stars that built the NBA, that got interest uh, in America in the NBA. But Earl Lloyd and and, uh, Chuck Cooper and, and Sweetwater Clifton they started one with the Knicks, one with the Celtics, and one with the Washington Capitals. And then Earl Lloyd went into service. After his first game, he was drafted because of the Vietnam War. He was in the uh, in the military, and he came out, and the team uh, had broken up. But they picked Earl with the Syracuse Nationals. Earl Lloyd was not only the first guy to play in the NBA, but he was also the first guy that was a champion. So he mm-hmm. went with the championship, 1955 uh, uh, NBA champion Syracuse Nationals. So that was quite an achievement that never, ever talked about. But Earl also became the first uh, African-American that was an assistant coach in the NBA. He became a chief scout in the NBA. So he occupied those two positions, and he is the – uh, a scout that was responsible for drafting me uh, to the Pistons. So Earl Lloyd was very integral in my life. And 10 years later, he brought me back as his assistant coach. And uh, I'm seven games into that season, uh, uh, I replaced him uh, begrudgingly, but I replaced him. And uh, But everything that I did, I, it was because Earl and I had talked about it. And they were the things that we were going to do. So when I was coach of the year, I mean, a big part of that trophy not only goes to the players because they had to buy in, but it also goes to Earl Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you've uh, um, triggered something, a story from 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 me uh, when I was in Vietnam. Okay. And um, we had uh, housing, and they were, they were called hooches. And um, of course, we were right next to the, the uh, um, I guess, sandbags is all you could pile around you because uh-huh. rockets would come in and so forth. I was not in the inventory, thank God, or uh, infantry, thank God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, uh, there were, I was out of 10 guys, nine guys, I was the only white guy. Oh my and, goodness! And the only and the other 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 white guys that were in in the, the vicinity would go over to where the white guys were. Okay. And I decided I was going to stay, and you know, and and have a good time. But yeah. it started off on a little rocky basis. Yeah. Uh, well, you're right well, out of the movie platoon, my friend. <laughs> I, I, I went up. To, I went up to him and and talking to him, and, and he said. Uh, Hey, what are you doing here, Jim Crow? And I said, what? 
I said, who's, I said, I said, who's Jim Crow? And that's, yeah. and that's, that solved it right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's, that's, that's a great story. I mean, because I went over in, and it's in my book. I went over in 68 to visit. I went to Okinawa, Guam, the Philippines, Tokyo, right. and visited yeah. the military hospitals. So you yeah. guys, as you guys were over in service, uh, Earl Monroe, Bob Ferry, and I were greeting you, uh, representing the uh, the government, representing the uh, what is it, USO, and mm-hmm. uh, we worked for the USO for that summer, visiting uh, uh, the various hospitals. Also, my brother served in Vietnam, so not only do I thank him for his service, I have to thank you, my friend, for your service. It is much appreciated. I am so proud to meet you and thank you. Well, well, thank you. And you're the, you're a, the right person in, in the generation because when people t- say to me, thanks for your service, usually I say, well, now I was in Nam. Just tell me, welcome home. Yes. And, and a lot of people don't know that. You know, the generations of kids or people have grown up and not knowing about the difficulty that uh, the GIs had coming home. Absolutely. And it was um, it was sad and and like again, I thank you because I understand your see. I, I try to explain to people because having been over there and been in your training grounds and so forth, people don't understand the rockets' red glare and the bombs bursting in air. Mm-hmm. That's not a joke. That's not just a line to a song. And um, being there, I, I said, you know, until You've heard bullets whistling through the night, which I did in the Detroit riots and the Baltimore riots, but uh, nothing like war, nothing like Mm -hmm. war. And you talked about, you uh, made an allusion earlier about how you had to build your sandbags. You know, you strategically Mm -hmm. built your sandbags. Sir, I don't think people even comprehend on the right hand how Fearful that must be to you young guys at 18, say to 23, 24 years old, being over there in something like that, risking your lives in a country that you don't even know about, in a country where the French were defeated. And so you went in with that knowledge of knowing there was another war fought here uh, by a great republic, and they didn't, they didn't win. What are we going to do? And mm-hmm. so that that courage that you young kids at that time had to possess to be among ah, the courageous soldiers that have fought wars, I don't think we could ever thank you. And it's nothing, nothing that we can imagine. Nothing. Well, being the one you, white guy. You don't imagine it. You know it. You heard it. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> yeah. And... And I'd I'd hang out with those guys almost every night, and uh, you know the the point that I'm I was going to make is that I felt like I was an exchange student, okay, learning about uh, learning about black culture, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and and that, that that's still with me today, you know. Amen. I, I I still uh, flip my radio over XM radio, and I'm looking yep. for the Soul Channel. You know? Yep, you go to the end of the dial, like like the rest of us. 
Oh, um, my goodness. Oh, what an existence. Yeah. What an existence. How did, you, how did you feel about the 60s and the change and the fight for equality? You know, because at that time, with all the assassinations to, to Emmett Till, to Medgar Evers, to Dr. King, to right. uh, Malcolm X, to the Kennedys, Right. Uh, how did you feel about that? Because that was that was our time. Well, I was shocked. Um, I mean, just and and looking back on that now, and it, it still is. It, I, I still get rattled because of that. Um, right. It was. Um, that there's no. There's no reason for it. You know, it's no right. no reason for it. You know, the uh, and that's. Um, it's it's if we could only. If we could only sit down and talk without yeah. being called a Democrat or a Republican, mm-hmm. okay. uh, if we could just sit down and talk, um, but I don't, I don't see it coming anytime soon, yeah. right? I it, just don't see it. It's not promised. Yeah, it's not. You know, I, I, I just thought the other night, John, as I was watching some of the events that are occurring, I said, you know, we're having these, these bad times. But you understand that these bad times are being perpetrated by Americans. We are Americans. And and I believe that's where we have to get. We have to understand that when these things happen to our kids or our senior citizens, they are Americans just as we are. And the people that are perpetrating these crimes are Americans. If they are Americans and they are perpetrating crimes, shouldn't they come under the auspices of the Constitution. We should not be talking about political parties. We should be talking about us being Americans and standing for what is right and looking at the Constitution of the Republic and saying this is what should occur to these people Mm -hmm. based on what the Constitution says. Because Mm -hmm. we are all equal and we don't play the game that way. You know, your, your book leads off with uh, with a quote, yes, and it says here, "Let me remind you of that unfilled, unfulfilled promise, the one right there in the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting my whole life for America to live up to that, and of course, that's Bill Russell. That's Bill Russell. The quote. Yeah, it's and that's." it's you know you can't you see that something like that and it's kind of just it stays with you okay well you lived it my friend well um uh, I, th- I think that um i've had a good life yeah. um oh i want to ask you now where when you're you're, you're launching your book tomorrow uh-huh. and yes. and where are people going to be able to find it and buy it well, other than the bookshelves, and the bookshelves would be at Barnes and Nobles, at Target, at uh, Walmart, but you can always go on Amazon. It's an easy purchase on Amazon, and you can just order it, and they send it right to you. Um, they have, uh, there have been, I hear, uh, a good uh, run on pre-orders for the book. So people have bought the book even before it was printed, but tomorrow mm-hmm. it hits the bookshelves. And I'm so happy, John. Oh, you should be. And proud. Proud as well. And proud. And proud as well. Thank you. I am.
Well, I want to thank you again for for being my guest, Ray. It's uh, it's been a delight, and uh, well, uh, so my my listeners are, are are good. They love my show. They like being rubbing elbows with integrity. Yeah, um, and they, uh, you know, I, I can't thank them enough as my listeners. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to uh, listening, of course, for searching for integrity. And uh, my audios is uh, so long and happy trails. Happy to all. Dean Autry. <laughs> that's our guy. Uh-uh. That's, that's Roy Rogers. That's Roy Rogers. I'm sorry. I said Dean Autry. That's, that's all right. That's you know, I had the opportunity to sit with him on a plane. What a man. <laughs> happy trails. I just, he'll be, I know he's in heaven, so he's going to be angry with me about that. But that's okay. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right, Ray. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you, my friend. And you be well. And again, thank you for your service. You'll never hear Thanks that again. enough. Thanks, Ray.